This is a criminal law update CLE offered by the New York Appellate Digest. My name is Bruce Freeman. I'm the editor of the New York Appellate Digest. These CLEs are based on appellate decisions released in 2023 and chosen for summarization on the New York Appellate Digest website. These summaries have been compiled into monthly reversal reports. And this portion of the 2023 Criminal Law Update CLE begins with the April 2023 Criminal Law Reversal Report. The references to page numbers in this portion of the uh, Criminal Law Update CLE are to the pages in the April 2023 Criminal Law Reversal Report. The first case is Graham on pages 3 and 4. Here, defendants still had the right to contest the constitutionality of his 2002 conviction because he was not informed of the period of post-release supervision before he pled guilty. His failure to move to withdraw the plea in 2010 when he was resentenced to add the period of post-release supervision did not waive his right to contest the 2002 conviction as a predicate felony. As the court explained it, quote, the court ruled that defendant was barred from challenging the 2002 conviction because he declined an opportunity to withdraw his 2002 plea when he was resentenced in 2010. However, that opportunity offered when defendant had only weeks left to serve on the eight and a half year sentence imposed in 2002 would not have provided a remedy for the constitutional defect that defendant is claiming which is that he would not have pleaded guilty in 2002 had he known of the ultimate post-release supervision component of his sentence. Accordingly, we find that defendant's 2010 failure to withdraw the 2002 plea did not waive his right to claim prejudice in the context of a challenge to the constitutionality of a predicate felony, and we remand for a ruling on that claim. Next is Taylor on page 4 of the April 2023 reversal report. This case illustrates what a conviction which is against the weight of the evidence looks like. Defendant was convicted of burglarizing a doctor's office based upon an open can of soda with defendant's DNA on it in the office reception area. The court wrote, quote, The verdict convicting defendant of a burglary of a doctor's office that occurred in July 2015 was against the weight of the evidence. Defendant was connected to this burglary solely through the presence of his DNA on an opened uh, soda can in the reception area. The office manager's testimony failed to address whether there was any innocent explanation for the presence of defendant or of the soda can at that location, end quote. So the takeaway the possibility of an innocent explanation for circumstantial evidence, here a soda can with defendant's DNA on it in the reception area of an office which was burglarized, was not addressed by the people's proof, so the guilty verdict was deemed against the weight of the evidence. Next is Wing on pages 4 and 5 of the April 2023 re reversal report. Here in this assault second case, the people did not prove the bamboo stick used by the defendant was a, quote, dangerous instrument, 
end quote. So the conviction was not supported by legally sufficient evidence. The court explained the definition of dangerous instrument this way, quote, A dangerous instrument is defined as any instrument which, under the circumstances in which it is used, attempted to be used, or threatened to be used, is readily capable of causing death or other ser serious physical injury. Serious physical injury is defined as physical injury which creates a substantial risk of death or which causes death or serious and protracted disfigurement, protracted impairment of health, or protracted loss or impairment of the function of any bodily organ. Here it was legally insufficient to establish that the bamboo stick, which was not produced at trial, was readily capable of killing or maiming the child or of causing any of the other severe harms described in Penal Law Section 10. End quote. So the takeaway, here the people's proof that a bamboo stick was a dangerous instrument was deemed legally insufficient, probably because the stick was not produced at trial. Next is Raul A. on pages 5 and 6. We're still in the April 2023 reversal report. If a juvenile pleads guilty to an offense for which he cannot be criminally responsible, the conviction must be vacated and dismissed. The court explained it, quote, Here, defendant was convicted by a plea of guilty to a crime to which he cannot be criminally responsible. This was not a case where a jury returned a verdict of guilty to the charge of criminal possession of a weapon in the second degree, thus requiring Supreme Court to transfer the case to family court for disposition. Rather, the people specifically requested that in addition to the charge of attempted murder in the second degree, defendant enter a plea of guilty to the fifth count charging criminal possession of a weapon in the second degree, a crime for which the people now concede that defendant cannot be held criminally responsible. Given this, defendant's conviction for criminal possession of a weapon in the second degree must be vacated and that charge dismissed, end quote. So the takeaway here, if a juvenile goes to trial on offenses which include those for which a juvenile cannot be held criminally responsible, the court can assume jurisdiction over all the offenses. If convicted after trial of an offense for which a juvenile is not criminally responsible, the conviction is vacated and the matter is sent to family court for disposition. But if, as here, the conviction is by guilty plea, it must be vacated and dismissed. Next is Matter of Seeley, page 7. Here the family court judge did not make findings of fact in this family offense proceeding. The record was not sufficient for appellate review and the matter was sent back. The court explained, quote, Family court, which was presented with sharply conflicting accounts by the parties regarding their allegations, issued mutual orders of protection without setting forth any findings with respect to the credibility of the parties or the facts deemed essential to its determination. And it cites CPLR section 4213 subdivision B. Since the record presents factual issues, including questions of credibility, and in light of the conflicting allegations made by the parties against each other, resolution thereof is best left to the court of first instance, end quote. 
So the takeaway here, the appellate court could not review a family offense proceeding where family court did not make findings of fact and credibility assessments. The matter was sent back to family court for findings of fact. Next is matter of Oler on page 8 of the April 2023 reversal report. Here's how the court described the facts in this family offense proceeding. Quote, After years of not seeing each other, respondent went to petitioner's house uninvited on October 28, 2021 and rang the doorbell. When petitioner answered the door, respondent said that she owed him a conversation. Petitioner responded that she did not want to talk to him and repeatedly asked him to leave. Respondent refused to leave, prompting petitioner to call the police. Respondent eventually left before the police arrived. Approximately six weeks later, respondent again went to petitioner's house uninvited and demanded to speak to her. Petitioner asked him to leave at least a dozen times, but respondent ignored those requests and entered her garage where she was standing. The police arrived shortly thereafter and took respondent into custody, charging him with trespass. End quote. The Fourth Department held those facts supported the family offense of harassment in the second degree, but did not support the family offense of aggravated harassment second degree or disorderly conduct. It's worth noting that disorderly conduct requires some type of public involvement. In other words, the general public must in some way be affected by an altercation between two individuals. And that public element was missing in this case, which involved two people speaking in a garage. Next is Watts on pages 9 and 10 of the April 2023 reversal report. The third department reversed defendant's conviction because the judge replaced a juror who had gone home ill the day before without making an adequate inquiry into her absence. Defense counsel preserved the error for appeal by registering an exception to the judge's replacement of the juror. As the court explained it, quote, When asked whether the court had received any notification from the juror, the court responded, No, basically, I don't have juror number one. She's just plain not here. She left early yesterday ill, so we're going to replace juror number one. Although replacement of a juror is generally left to the court's discretion, without a reasonably thorough inquiry, the exercise of the court's discretion on the ultimate issue of whether or not to replace the juror was uninformed. County court was certainly not required to wait two hours before substituting juror number one, but on the record before us, it impermissibly presumed that she was unavailable for continued service without conducting the requisite reasonably thorough inquiry and determining that the juror was not likely to appear within two hours, end quote. Next is Matter of Hussein, pages 10 and 11 of the April 2023 reversal report. Here the petitioner owned a limousine service. The brakes failed on one of the limousines, and the driver, 17 passengers, and two pedestrians were killed. Petitioner was sentenced to two years of interim probation, community service, and a period of probation. 
When the two-year interim probation sentence was determined to be illegal, Petitioner appeared before a different judge for resentencing. The new judge refused to abide by the plea agreement and told Petitioner he would be sentenced to prison. Petitioner withdrew his plea and brought an Article 78 petition seeking a writ of mandamus, a writ of prohibition, and specific performance of the plea agreement. The petition was denied. The court explained, quote, Mandamus to compel is an extraordinary remedy commanding an officer or body to perform a specified ministerial act that is required by law to be performed. It does not lie to enforce a duty that is discretionary. Imposing a criminal sentence is never ministerial. A review of the merits leads us to conclude that the issuance of a writ of prohibition is unwarranted. A defendant is not entitled to specific performance of a plea bargain unless he or she has been placed in a no-return position in reliance on the plea agreement, end quote. So in this situation, the writ of mandamus was inappropriate because sentencing is not a ministerial act and a writ of prohibition was unwarranted because the defendant was not placed in a no-return position in reliance on the plea agreement. Next is Graham on pages 11 and 12, still in the April 2023 reversal report. Here, the third department held that the sentences for possession of a weapon used in a murder should not have been imposed consecutively. As the court explained it, quote, The conviction on count two stems from defendant's possession and intent to use an operable loaded 357 caliber revolver, and his conviction on, on count three was based upon his mere unlawful possession of that same firearm regardless of any intent to use the weapon. Because defendant's possession of the weapon was a material element of both weapon possession counts, was part of the same act resulting in the murder, and there was no evidence that defendant possessed the weapon with purposes unrelated to his intent to shoot the victim, the sentence imposed on count three is modified to run concurrently with the sentence imposed on count two. County Court also erred in running the sentences on counts 1 and 3 consecutively to one another. Where a defendant is charged with criminal possession of a weapon, as well as a crime involving the use of that weapon, consecutive sentencing is allowed. So long as the defendant knowingly unlawfully possesses a loaded firearm before forming the intent to cause a crime with that weapon. Here, however, the people's theory of the case which the jury ultimately believed, was the defendant had already formed the specific intent to kill the victim when he procured the revolver, end quote. So the sentence for the possession of the revolver must run con- uh, concurrently because the intent to use the weapon was formed before it was used. Next is Winter, pages 10 and 11 of the April 2023 reversal report, the third department reversing county court held that burglary as a sexually motivated felony is not listed in the correction law as a crime subject to the Sex Offender Registration Act. Therefore, the defendant was not required to register as a sex offender. 
Next is Congdon, pages 13 and 14. This is the April 23 reversal report. The Fourth Department held that where the underlying conviction for a sex offense has been overturned and the indictment dismissed, the defendant can no longer be classified as a sex offender under the Sex Offender Registration Act. Next is Mota on page 14. Second Department held that a defense counsel who fails to take a position in the SORA Risk Level Assessment, that's the Sex Offender Registration Act Risk Level Assessment Proceeding, does not provide effective assistance of counsel. Again, a defense counsel who fails to take a position in the SORA Risk Level Assessment Proceeding does not provide effective assistance of counsel. Next is West on page 18 of the April 2023 Reversal Report. The Third Department, reversing defendant's criminal mischief conviction, held the Superior Court information was jurisdictionally defective because it did not affirmatively plead the exception in the statute. The court explained it this way, quote, Penal Law Section 145.05, Subdivision 2, provides that a person is guilty of criminal mischief in the third degree when, with intent to damage property of another person, and having no right to do so, nor any reasonable ground to believe that he or she has such right, he or she damages property of another person in an amount exceeding $250. Inasmuch as the qualifying language is contained within the statute itself, we agree that such language constitutes an exception. Given that count one of the 2016 Superior Court information did not allege that defendant had neither a right to cause the property damage at issue nor a reasonable ground to believe that she had such right, that count, charging defendant with criminal mischief in the third degree, is jurisdictionally defective. So the takeaway here, where a criminal statute includes an exception to its applicability, a superior court information must affirmatively plead that the exception does not apply or the superior court information will be deemed jurisdictionally defective. Next is Solomon, Court of Appeals case on page 19 of the April 2023 reversal report. The Court of Appeals held that a superior court information filed after indictment is a nullity. The court wrote, quote, A defendant may waive their constitutional right to grand jury presentment and indictment and proceed by superior court information in accordance with the strict technical requirements of Criminal Procedure Law Section 195.10, Subdivision 2. Here, the Superior Court information was filed after the grand jury indicted defendant, and thus the Superior Court information failed to comply with the statutory prerequisites. Accordingly, the Superior Court information is a nullity and was properly dismissed." End quote. Next is Hartle, pages 19 and 20 of the April 2023 Reversal Report, another Court of Appeals case. Here the Court of Appeals grappled with what constitutes newly discovered evidence in the context of a motion to vacate a conviction. 
defendant had been convicted of the rape and sexual abuse of a 15-year-old girl. The motion to vacate was based upon the ability to recover images and texts involving the victim, which had been deleted from defendant's cell phone. The court wrote, quote, The evidence proffered is far from newly discovered. It is evidence the defendant knew about, was involved in the creation of, and believed he destroyed well before trial in an effort to conceal criminal activity. As defendant affirmed, he, quote, deleted the photographs and or text messages because he did not want anyone to see them, end quote. This is unsurprising given that the material, including nude photographs he took of the victim, was compelling evidence of his sexual contact with a minor. Defendant cannot now claim that because certain technology was not available to recover the incriminating texts and photographs that he attempted to destroy, that material, now recovered, somehow qualifies as, quote, newly discovered evidence, end quote. Nor has defendant met Criminal Procedure Law 440.10, Subdivision G's due diligence prong, which requires that defendants show that the evidence could not have been produced at the trial even with due diligence on the part of the defendant. Nowhere in defendant's conclusory submissions is there any showing that the evidence was inaccessible before trial or any indication that defendant tried to obtain it. End quote. Next is Camlin, pages 20 and 21 of the April 2023 reversal report. Here the third department vacated the guilty plea and dismissed the Superior Court information because the record did not indicate the waiver of indictment was signed in open court, which is a jurisdictional defect. As the court explained it, quote, A defendant may waive indictment by grand jury and consent to be prosecuted on an information filed by the district attorney, provided that such waiver shall be evidenced by written instrument signed by the defendant in open court in the presence of his or her counsel. Although the record reflects that defendant orally agreed to waive indictment in open court and contains a written waiver of indictment bearing the date of that appearance, which defendant and defense counsel acknowledged signing, the minutes do not demonstrate that defendant signed the waiver in open court as constitutionally mandated. Compliance with this unequivocal dictate is indispensable to a knowing and intelligent waiver, and the failure to adhere to this strict procedure is a jurisdictional defect which survives a guilty plea and appeal waiver and need not be preserved for review by a motion to withdraw the plea. Neither the written waiver of indictment to which the district attorney executed consent nor county court's undated order approving the waiver indicates that the waiver was signed in open court. In light of this jurisdictional defect, defendant's guilty plea must be vacated and the superior court information must be dismissed. End quote. And that completes the summaries that are in the April 2023 criminal law reversal report. And we will now move to the May 2023 criminal law reversal report as the written materials. So the first case, we are now in the May 2023 reversal report. First case is Wheeler, pages four and five. Court of Appeals case. 
The Court of Appeals reversed the appellate division, finding the proof of physical injury legally insufficient to support the assault's second conviction. The court wrote, quote, The victim testified that defendant delivered a very hard blow to his face, that he felt pain, and that he experienced bleeding and swelling. Hospital records describe the victim's pain as aching and indicate he was directed to take over-the-counter painkillers. Viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the people, it was sufficient to establish physical injury for the purpose of Penal Law Section 120.05, Subdivision 3. So there was a disagreement here between the appellate division, which found the proof that the victim's pain was an ache and that it was controlled by over-the-counter painkillers to be insufficient to prove physical injury, the Court of Appeals reversed that determination, finding that evidence was sufficient to prove physical injury for the purposes of Penal Law Section 120.05, Subdivision 3. Next is Flores, pages 5 and 6. We are now in the May 2023 reversal report. The First Department reversed defendants' convictions and dismissed the indictments because the people failed to tell the defense they were helping the complainant obtain a so-called U-Visa to allow the complainant to stay in the United States. That information was Brady material, which the people should have divulged. The defendants have already been deported. The court wrote, quote, We cannot know what a jury would have done with further material impeachment arising from the U-Visa evidence. It might have found the U-Visa evidence fatally undermined the complainant's credibility. We find that there is reasonable probability that had the jury considered the U-Visa evidence, it would have raised enough reasonable doubt to produce a different outcome. End quote. Next is Weaver, pages 8 and 9 of the May 2023 reversal report. The third department granted a writ of quorum nobis and ordered a new trial because appellate counsel didn't raise the reversible jury instruction error. The trial judge's depraved indifference murder jury instruction was incorrect. The court explained it this way, quote, Defendant asserts that county court's instructions to the jury regarding depraved indifference murder were consistent with the overruled objective standard set forth in People v. Register, which is 60 New York 2nd, page 270, a 1983 case. And therefore, the court's instructions failed to explain the requisite culpable mental state as required by People v. Feingold, which is 7 New York 3rd, page 288, a 2006 case. We agree. In discharging its duty to deliver a charge to the jury, a court must instruct the jury regarding both the fundamental legal principles applicable to criminal cases in general and those material legal principles applicable to the particular case, citing Criminal Procedure Law, Section 300.10, Subdivision 1. At the time of defendant's trial, the Court of Appeals had already held that depraved indifference to human life is a culpable mental state. As a result, under the Feingold case, it is, not the circumstances under, it is not the circumstances under which the homicide occurred that determines whether a defendant is guilty of depraved indifference murder, but rather the defendant's mental state at the time the crime occurred, end quote. 
So the takeaway, depraved indifference murder to human life does not refer to the circumstances under which the homicide occurred. It refers to the defendant's mental state at the time the crime was committed. Next is Sanger, pages 9 and 10 of the May 2023 Reversal Report Court of Appeals case. The Court of Appeals held that the indictment count charging an aggravated family offense was jurisdictionally defective because it did not specify the current misdemeanor offense that the count was based on. The court wrote, quote, To commit the crime of aggravated family offense, a defendant must have been convicted of one or more of the specified offenses in Subdivision 2 of the statute within the previous five years. The defendant must have currently committed one of the misdemeanor offenses listed in Subdivision 2, and both offenses must be committed against a member of the same family or household as the defendant. Defendant contends that the failure to specify the current misdemeanor offense in the count of the indictment charging him with aggravated family offense rendered the count jurisdictionally defective, and we agree. Next is Ashley on pages 10 and 11 of the May 2023 reversal report. Here the fourth department held the indictment should have been dismissed because one of the grand jurors had a felony conviction. As the court explained it, quote, a grand jury is illegally constituted when one of its members is not qualified to serve as a juror pursuant to the judiciary law. Here it's undisputed that the grand jury was illegally constituted because one of the grand jurors had been convicted of a felony rendering him unqualified to serve as a grand juror, and it cites Judiciary Law Sections 501 and 510. Despite the illegally constituted grand jury, the court nonetheless determined that dismissal of the indictment was unwarranted inasmuch as the alleged defect did not result in any prejudice to the defendant. We conclude that it was error for the court to require a showing of prejudice before dismissing the indictment for a violation of Criminal Procedure Law, Section 210.35, Subdivision 1. End quote. So the takeaway, an indictment issued by an illegally constituted grand jury must be dismissed without any consideration of whether the defendant was prejudiced. Next is Lacey pages 12 and 13 of the May 2023 reversal report. Here, the First Department dismissed the indictment because it failed to specify the charged crime. The court wrote, quote, The indictment purported to charge defendant with persistent sexual abuse, a statute that elevates the repeated commission of any of three separately codified misdemeanors to a felony, but it failed to specify which of the three discrete qualifying offenses defendant was alleged to have committed. Therefore, the indictment did not give defendant notice with sufficient precision to clearly apprise the defendant of the conduct which is the subject of the accusation, and it cites Criminal Procedure Law, Section 200.50, Subdivision 7A. End quote. So the takeaway, to charge a defendant with persistent sexual abuse the indictment must specify the prior offenses defendant is alleged to have repeatedly committed. The failure to do so renders the indictment 
jurisdictionally defective. Next is the Baptiste case, pages 13 and 14 of the May 2023 reversal report. Here the judge did not properly handle a note from the jury. The first department reversed the convictions and ordered a new trial. A jury note which requires only a so-called ministerial act need not be shared with counsel, but a note which is ambiguous about which exhibits are requested must be shared. The court wrote, quote, The court did not follow the procedures set forth in People v. Orama, 78 New York 2nd, page 270, 1991, with regard to several jury notes. The record does not reflect that the court read or showed four of the jury's notes to the parties or afforded them an opportunity to provide input regarding the proper response to the notes. Indeed, the record contains no indication that these four notes, each of which sought trial exhibits, were responded to at all. While notes that only require the ministerial act of sending exhibits into the jury room do not implicate the requirements of ORAMA and Criminal Procedure Law Section 310.30, notes that do not unambiguously describe the requested exhibits warrant input from counsel and are subject to ORAMA's requirement of meaningful notice. Here, at least two of the notes that the court did not address fall into this latter category. Because of this mode of proceedings error, a new trial is called for, end quote. So the takeaway, if a jury note is not clear about which exhibits the jury is requesting to see, the note must be shared with counsel. Failure to share the note is a mode of proceedings error which requires reversal. Next is Swanton, pages 15 and 16 of the May 2023 reversal report. Here, the Fourth Department reversed the defendant's murder conviction because his testimony raised the justification defense and the judge did not instruct the jury on the defense. The defendant testified he was on the ground with the victim on top of him, repeatedly striking him in the head when defendant drew the weapon and shot him. The court explained it this way, quote, Even if the victim had not already employed deadly force against defendant at the time, defendant allegedly used deadly force against the victim, the question remains whether defendant could reasonably have believed that the use of such force against him was imminent. The victim was not armed, but defendant testified that he knew that the victim owned at least one gun and that at the time of the shooting, he did not know whether the victim was armed. Further, defendant's testimony that the victim pinned him down and was repeatedly punching his face and head could support a finding that defendant reasonably believed that such conduct presented an imminent threat of deadly force inasmuch as the natural and probable consequences of repeatedly striking a man while he is on the ground defenseless is that he will sustain a serious physical injury within the meaning of the penal law, section 10, subdivision 10. Although defendant's version of the incident may be dubious, a trial court is required to give the justification charge even where the defendant's version of events is extraordinarily unlikely, end quote. So the takeaway, even if it is only the defendant's testimony which raises the justification defense, 
and even if defendant's version of events is unlikely, the justification jury instruction should be given. Next is Skeeter on pages 16 and 17 of the May 2023 reversal report. The first department reversed defendant's manslaughter conviction because the people did not disprove the justification defense. The fact that during a shootout, the victim was shot in the back was not enough. The court wrote, quote, there was no evidence that defendant approached displaying a firearm. Rather, the evidence strongly suggests that the victim was the first person to do so. In this case, we do not believe that the mere fact that the victim was shot in the back establishes that defendant was the initial aggressor or that he did not reasonably believe that deadly force was still being used against him at the time he fired the fatal shot. Under the totality of the evidence, the fact that the victim had his back, uh, had his back turned to defendant at the moment when he was shot does not establish that he was withdrawing from the gunfight or running away, end quote. So the takeaway, once the justification defense is raised, the people must disprove the defense beyond a reasonable doubt. Next is Spirito, pages 17 and 18 of the May 2023 reversal report. Here, the third department, noting that parolees do not surrender their rights against unreasonable searches and seizures, upheld a search of defendant parolee's residence by parole officers based upon a tip from the defendant's mother. Two judges dissented. Mother saw a picture of defendant with a gun. The search turned up magazines and gun parts in the defendant's bedroom. As the court explained it, quote, the general rules and conditions of release typically require a parolee to submit to a warrantless search by his or her parole officer, the record evinces that defendant executed such a document. However, a parolee does not surrender his or her constitutional rights against unreasonable searches and seizures, and what may be unreasonable with respect to an individual who is not on parole may be reasonable with respect to one who is. Accordingly, a search of a parolee undertaken by a parole officer is constitutional if the conduct of the parole officer was rationally and reasonably related to the performance of the parole officer's duty and was substantially related to the performance of duty in the particular circumstances, end quote. So the takeaway here, a parolee does not surrender all rights against unreasonable searches and seizures. Any search by parole officers must be reasonable related to the performance of the officer's duty. Here, a tip from defendant's mother about defendant's possession of a gun was deemed to justify the search, but two judges did dissent. Next is Adames, pages 18 and 19 of the May 2023 reversal report. The First Department held that the preservation requirement extends to constitutional arguments. After defendant pled guilty, the U.S. Supreme Court held the possession of a weapon statute to which he pled was unconstitutional. Defendant raised the constitutional argument on appeal, 
but the argument was rejected because it was not raised in the trial court and therefore was not preserved for appeal. The court explained, quote, Defendant did not preserve his claim that Penal Law Section 265.03 Subdivision 3 is unconstitutional in light of the United States Supreme Court's decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, or his related claim that the ineligibility of persons under 21, such as himself at the time of the crime, to apply for licenses to carry firearms violates the Second Amendment. This preservation requirement is no mere formalism, but ensures that the drastic step of striking duly enacted legislation will be taken not in a vacuum, but only after the lower courts have had an opportunity to address the issue and the unconstitutionality of the challenged provision has been established. Defendant is essentially making the argument that an appellant should not be penalized for his failure to anticipate the shape of things to come but the Court of Appeals has expressly rejected that argument. This preservation principle applies to constitutional claims. So the takeaway here, a defendant who has been convicted of violating a statute that is subsequently deemed unconstitutional cannot appeal on the constitutional issue unless it was first raised in the lower court. If a statute is arguably unconstitutional, raise the issue in your motion papers. Next is Reed on pages 20 and 21 of the May 2023 Reversal Report, Court of Appeals case. The Court of Appeals reversed defendant's conviction and ordered a new trial because the record did not support the trial judge's decision to close the courtroom because spectators were deemed intimidating. The court wrote, quote, The people moved to close the courtroom citing the fact that photographs had been taken in the courtroom and posted on Instagram with the caption, Free Dick Wolf, which the prosecutor asserted was a reference to one of the defendant's street names. After an off-the-record discussion with counsel, the court noted its concern with the photographs and added that, quote, people in the courtroom have been very intimidating. They intimidated a court reporter already. They stare people down. They're staring up here. I am closing this courtroom based on the fact that now there are pictures that were taken in this courtroom, and I know that pictures can be taken very surreptitiously with a cell phone. You can look like you're look you can look like you're looking at your cell phone when you're really taking pictures. But clearly pictures were taken in this courtroom by someone who had to have been sitting in this courtroom and pictures were taken outside the court. I'm closing the courtroom. End quote. Although the prevention of intimidation by spectators during trial may very well be an overriding interest that can support courtroom closure, it is incumbent on the trial court to ensure that the record adequately justifies its concerns and demonstrates that the identified interest would be jeopardized absent a closure. Where closure is warranted, it must be tailored to address the overriding interest. Here the court ordered the broadest possible closure, completely excluding all members of the public for the remainder of the trial. On this sparse record, the closure was disproportionate in relation to the circumstances described. End quote. 
At this point, I'm going to insert a verification code to be placed on your attorney affirmation for this criminal law update CLE. A verification code for this criminal law update CLE is closure. Again, a verification code to be put on your attorney affirmation for this criminal law update CLE is closure. Next case is Muhammad, page 21. We're still in the May 2023 reversal report, another court of appeals case. Here the court of appeals reversing the appellate division again addressed the right to a public trial. The trial judge had a policy of not letting members of the public into the courtroom during testimony. The way that pol policy was implemented by the court officers in this case resulted in some members of the public being improperly excluded from the courtroom. The court wrote, quote, The trial judge is in charge of the courtroom and is ultimately responsible for ensuring that any limitation on a defendant's right to a public trial conforms with constitutional dictates. At defendant's trial, the judge delegated to court officers the implementation of the judge's general policy of prohibiting the public from entering or ex exiting the courtroom while a witness testifies. Members of the public were excluded from the courtroom at a time when they should have had access under the terms of the extant policy. That error directly resulted from the acts of court officials enforcing the trial judge's order. Therefore, the court violated defendant's right to a public trial." End quote. So the takeaway here, although the judge's policy was not intended to exclude the public from the trial, the way the, the officers, the court officers, implement, implemented the policy had that effect. So the defendant's right to a public trial was deemed violated. Next is Barksdale on page 22. Here the, uh, the defendant was sentenced virtually by Zoom, apparently, but did not waive his right to be present at the sentencing, and the court ruled that he was entitled to be resentenced. Next is Parsley on pages 23 and 24 of the May 2023 reversal report. Once a defendant has started serving his sentence, it cannot be altered. Because there was no indication at sentencing that the sentences for two offenses should run consecutively, by operation of law, those sentences were to run, run concurrently. An amended uniform sentence and commitment form purporting to correct an inadvertent error was filed after defendant had begun his sentence. The amended form indicated all three sentences were to run consecutively, thereby improperly altering defendant's sentence so the altered sentence, which made the sentences run consecutively, was deemed invalid. Next is Part Low, pages 23 and 24 of the May 2023 reversal report. The Fourth Department reduced defendant's sentence for manslaughter by four years under the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. As the court explained it, quote, Penal Law Section 60.12 Subdivision 1 provides an alternative sentencing scheme that the sentencing court may apply 
where it determines that a at the time of the instant offense the defendant was a victim of domestic violence subjected to substantial physical sexual or psychological abuse inflicted by a member of the same family or household as the defendant b such abuse was a significant contributing factor to the defendant's criminal behavior and c having regard for the nature and circumstances of the crime and the history, character, and condition of the defendant, that a sentence of imprisonment pursuant to the otherwise applicable statutes would be unduly harsh, end quote. So here, under the facts, the Fourth Department determined the existing sentence was unduly harsh, reduced the sentence for manslaughter by four years, under the criteria of the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. Next is McCall on pages 24 and 25 of the May 2023 reversal report. Here the defendant was sentenced as a second felony offender, which requires that the first felony conviction was within 10 years of the second. The defendant demonstrated the two convictions were more than 10 years apart, and the people did not demonstrate that any portion of the 10-year look-back was told by defendant's incarceration. The court noted that the issue need not be preserved for appeal, vacated defendant's sentence, and sent the matter back for a hearing and resentencing. Next is Gurley, pages 25 and 26 of the May 2023 reversal report. Here in this Sex Offender Registration Act proceeding, there were 17 years between defendants released from prison in 2002 and the SORA risk level proceeding in 2019, where defendants sought a downward departure from level 2 to level 1. Defendant had not reoffended during those 17 years, which is a factor not considered in the risk assessment instrument. The Second Department, reversing Supreme Court, deemed the 17-year crime-free period a valid ground for a downward departure to level 1. Next is Green, pages 27 and 28. Under the Sex Offender Registration Act, a defendant is entitled to 10 days' notice of the people's intent to seek points under a risk factor which is different from that recommendation that re recommended by the board the court explained quote here the factual predicate for the board's recommendation for the assessment of points under risk factor 1 was the defendant having been armed with a dangerous instrument not that he inflicted physical injury in order to assess points under risk factor 1 based upon infliction of phys physical injury the people were required by Correction Law Section 168-N, Subdivision 3, to give the defendant the requisite 10-day notice, which they failed to do, end quote. Next is Robinson, pages 28 and 29 of the May 2023 reversal report. The Third Department reversed the defendant's conviction because a SIROA hearing, that's S-I-R-O-I-S, should have been held before the victim's statement was admitted in evidence. The people argued the statement should be admitted because the defendant had procured her silence at trial. But the evidence on that question was conflicting 
so a hearing should have been held. The court wrote, Defendant should have been afforded an opportunity to test the causal link between the victim's refusal to testify at trial and the jail calls, as defendant requested, at a separate hearing. Although the people contend that a hearing was not necessary because the jail calls so overwhelmingly establish that the victim's silence was procured by defendant's misconduct, this conclusion is not the test inasmuch as this court, that's the appellate court, cannot evaluate the record in its present state because no hearing was held, end quote. So the takeaway, one factor for deciding whether a hearing is necessary is what an appellate court needs to review what happened at the trial. Here, because no hearing was held, the third department was unable to determine whether the trial court properly decided that the victim's silence had been procured by the defendant and that required reversal. Next is Fuentes, pages 29 and 30. We're still in the May 2023 reversal report. The COVID toll imposed by executive order applies to the speedy trial statute and rendered the indictment timely in this case. The court wrote, quote, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, on December 30th, 2020, former Governor Andrew Cuomo issued Executive Order Number 202.87, which provided, quote, Section 3030 and Section 190.80 of the Criminal Procedure Law are suspended to the extent necessary to toll any time periods contained therein for the period during which the criminal action is proceeding on the basis of a felony complaint through arraignment on the indictment or on a superior court information and thereafter shall not be told. Successive executive orders extended the order through May 23, 2021. The order constituted a toll of the time within which the people must be ready for trial for the period from the date a felony complaint was filed through the date of a defendant's arraignment on the indictment with no requirement that the people establish necessity for a toll in each particular case, end quote. Next is King on page 31 of the May 2023 reversal report. The Fourth Department, reversing Supreme Court over a dissent, held that defendants' motion to dismiss the indictment on speedy trial grounds should have been granted. A new law went into effect during the course of the prosecution requiring the people to serve and file a certificate of compliance with discovery obligations pursuant to Criminal Procedure Law Section 245.50, Subdivision 3. As the court explained it, quote, the procedures outlined in Criminal Procedure Law Article 245 became applicable to pending actions as soon as that article became effective. With respect to the effect of Criminal Procedure Law Section 245.50 Subdivision 3 on pending prosecutions in which the people had previously announced readiness for trial, the people were placed in a state of non-readiness on January 1, 2020, the effective date of Criminal Procedure Law Article 245 as a matter of law, where no certificate of compliance had been filed as of that date. 
End quote. Next is Johnson on page 32 of the May 2023 reversal report. The Court of Appeals, reversing the appellate division and dismissing the indictment, held the police did not have reasonable suspicion defendant had committed a crime or was in possession of a weapon at the time defendant was frisked. As the court explained it, quote, Mr. Johnson's, that's the defendant's actions, as observed by Officer Pike, do not meet the minimum standard required to justify a stop and frisk under DeBoer. Prior to the frisk, Officer Pike observed Mr. Johnson, one, move from the driver's seat to the passenger seat of his parked car, two, move his upper torso back toward the driver's seat, three, pull up his pants and attempt to buckle his belt, and four, appear nervous while being questioned. These circumstances do not support a reasonable view that Mr. Johnson was armed or that he had committed or was about to commit a crime. These actions constituted nothing other than innocuous behavior sole reliance on which would impermissibly reduce the foundation for this intrusion to nothing but whim or caprice, end quote. Next is Scott, page 33 of the May 2023 reversal report. Here the First Department, reversing defendant's conviction and dismissing the indictment, held the police properly stopped the car in which defendant was a passenger, but the police did not have enough information to justify a search of the car for a weapon. A weapon was found in an open purse in the back seat. As the court explained it, quote, The police have authority to order occupants out of a vehicle in the event of a traffic violation. Absent probable cause, the police are allowed to conduct a limited intrusion into the vehicle only if the totality of the information available supports a reasonable conclusion that there is a substantial likelihood of a weapon within the vehicle that poses an actual and specific threat to the officer's safety. Furtive movements suggesting that the defendant was reaching for something that might be a weapon combined with some other suggestive factor, have been determined to meet this standard. No actual and specific danger was shown to exist in this case. Defendant hesitated only briefly before rolling the window down and complying with the officer's demands to show his hands and step out of the vehicle. Taking a few moments to comply with an officer's orders does not rise to the level of furtive or suspicious activity so as to support a finding of an actual and specific danger to officer safety. Now that concludes the uh, summaries based upon the May 2023 criminal law reversal report, and we are now moving to the June 2023 criminal law reversal report as the written materials for the remaining portion of the CLE. First case in the June 2023 criminal law reversal report is Shea on page four. Here the fourth department held the defendant's waiver of appeal was invalid because the judge mischaracterized the waiver as an absolute bar to an appeal. As the court explained it, 
Defendant's waiver of the right to appeal is invalid because county court's oral colloquy mischaracterized it as an absolute bar to, to the taking of an appeal. Furthermore, the written waiver executed by defendant did not contain any clarifying language to correct deficiencies in the oral colloquy. Rather, it perpetuated the oral colloquy's mischaracterization of the waiver of the right to appeal as an absolute bar to the taking of a first-tier direct appeal, and even stated that the rights defendant was waiving included the right to have an attorney appointed if she could not afford one, and the right to submit a brief and argue before an appellate court issues relating to her sentence and conviction. So the takeaway here, characterizing a waiver of appeal as absolute is incorrect. There are limited appellate rights, even with a waiver. Next is Ames on pages 4 and 5. Here, the proof that the victim tripped and fell onto subway tracks during an altercation did not demonstrate defendant's intent to use the subway tracks as a dangerous instrument, and the assault second conviction was vacated. The court wrote, The theory supporting this count was not that defendant intended to use the electrified third rail or a moving train as a dangerous instrument, or acted recklessly, but instead that defendant intended that the victim be injured by striking the tracks alleged to be a hard object. The evidence failed to establish defendant's intent to use the tracks in that manner. The people's evidence, including the victim's testimony and a blurry video, was consistent with the victim merely tripping and falling onto the tracks during an altercation with the defendant. Even if defendant caused the victim to fall on the tracks, that would not establish the specific intent required for this conviction." End quote. Next is Jackson on pages 8 and 9. We're in the June 2023 Criminal Law Reversal Report. Here, defendant requested new counsel on the ground his assigned attorney was being paid by his family, which is a violation of the county law. The judge's failure to inquire into the complaint violated defendant's right to counsel. As the court explained it, Supreme Court violated defendant's right to counsel when it failed to conduct a sufficient inquiry into defendant's complaint that his assigned counsel accepted payment from his family. Trial courts have the ongoing duty to carefully evaluate serious complaints about counsel. Defendant sent a letter to the court alleging that his assigned counsel was being paid by his family, which is a serious complaint involving unethical and illegal conduct, and it cites County Law Section 722-B. Although the court began to engage defense counsel in a discussion concerning defendant's letter, before defense counsel was able to address the concerns raised by defendant in the letter, the court interjected and said, you are going to represent defendant at trial. The court then addressed defendant directly and uh, concluded its comments to him by stating, you are not going to get another attorney. At no time did the court make an inquiry into defendant's allegation that his family had paid defense counsel to represent him. The court violated defendant's right to counsel by failing to make a minimal inquiry concerning his serious complaint. 
end quote. Next is prior, page 8. We're in the June 2023 reversal report. A guilty plea is not knowing, voluntary, and intelligent unless the defendant is informed of the specific period of post-release supervision and the maximum potential period of post-release supervision. It's not enough simply to mention that post-release supervision will be imposed. Here's how the court put it, quote, At the plea proceeding, County Court mentioned that the sentence would include post-release supervision but did not specify the period of post-release supervision to be imposed, nor did the court indicate the maximum potential duration of post-release supervision that may be imposed. The court's failure to so advise the defendant prevented his plea from being knowing, voluntary, and intelligent, end quote. Next is Charlotte, page 7 the June 2023 reversal report, where a defendant is convicted of inclusory concurrent counts, those counts must be dismissed and the related sentences vacated. The court explained, quote, with respect to inclusory concurrent counts, a verdict of guilty upon the greatest count submitted is deemed a dismissal of every lesser count submitted. And it cites Criminal Procedure Law 300.40. Criminal sexual act in the first degree, two counts, must be reversed and dismissed as inclusory concurrent counts of predatory sexual assault against the child, end quote. Next is Pulliam, pages 7 and 8, in the June 2023 reversal report. The second department, reversing defendant's robbery conviction and ordering a new trial, held the trial judge acted as an advocate for the prosecution when questioning witnesses. The issue was not preserved, but the Second Department exercised its interest of justice jurisdiction. As the court explained it, quote, A trial judge is permitted to question witnesses to clarify testimony and to facilitate the progress of the trial, and, if necessary, to develop factual information so long as the judge does not take on the function or appearance of an advocate. Here, Supreme Court engaged in its own lines of inquiry. Viewing the record as a whole, Supreme Court took on the function and appearance of an advocate, at times even engaging in a running commentary on the testimony against the defendant. The court's conduct left the impression that its opinion favored the credibility of the people's witnesses and the merits of the people's case, end quote. Next is Smith on pages 8 and 9. Here the four-cause challenges to two jurors who said they would tend to believe the testimony of police officers should have been granted. Because defendant exhausted all peremptory challenges, reversal is required. The fact that the jurors said that they could be fair and impartial was not enough to warrant denial of the challenges. As the court explained it, quote, the first prospective juror stated in response to a question concerning police officers that she was raised to respect them and that because they're the people that are protecting you, you should trust them. When further probed about weighing the credibility of a police officer's testimony against the defendant's testimony, she stated that she would most likely believe the police officer. 
The second pr prospective juror stated that because of his work as an emergency medical technician, he saw police in a very positive light. When asked the same question about whose version of events he would believe, the prospective juror stated, to be completely honest, probably the first responder police officer, end quote. Next is Skeeter on pages 9 and 10. The First Department, exercising its interest of justice jurisdiction, reversing defendant's manslaughter conviction, held the people did not dispro disprove defendant's justification defense. The fact that during a shootout the victim was shot in the back was not enough. The court wrote, quote, when a defense of justification is raised, the people must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant's conduct was not justified. In other words, the people must demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant did not believe deadly force was necessary or that a reasonable person in the same situation would not have perceived that deadly force was necessary. In this case, the evidence regarding which man initiated the gunfire was equivocal at best, and the evidence strongly suggests that the victim was the first person to do so. The mere fact that the victim was shot in the back did not establish that defendant was the initial aggressor, or that he did not reasonably believe that deadly force was still being used against him at the time he fired the fatal shot. The fact that the victim had his back turned to the defendant at the moment when he was shot does not establish that he was withdrawing from the gunfight or running away, end quote. Next is matter of TIMAR, T-I-M-A-R. The Fourth Department, reversing family court in this juvenile delinquency proceeding, held that the respondent juvenile was not informed that the fact-finding hearing would proceed in his absence if he didn't show up. Therefore, he did not waive his right to be present at the hearing. As the court put it, quote, the court did not advise respondent, that's the juvenile, that he had a right to be present at the fact-finding hearing and that the consequence of his failure to appear would be that the fact-finding hearing would proceed in his absence, and it cites People v. Parker, 57 New York 2nd, page 136. We therefore conclude on this record that there is no voluntary, knowing, and intelligent waiver of the juvenile's right to be present at the hearing. End quote. In other words, the Parker warnings are required in juvenile delinquency proceedings. At this point, I'm going to insert a verification code to be put on your attorney affirmation. A verification code for this April, May, June 2023 criminal law update CLE is juvenile. Again, a verification code for this April, May, June 2023 criminal law update CLE is juvenile. Next is McCracken on pages 12 and 13 of the June 2023 reversal report. The fourth department sent the matter back for a hearing on whether the parole violation warrant authorizing entry into the parolee's residence 
was supported by probable cause. As the court explained it, quote, a parole violation warrant by itself justifies the entry of the residence for the purposes of locating and arresting the defendant, provided that as here, the officers reasonably believed the defendant to be present in the premises. Pursuant to 9 NYCRR 8004.2, a parole violation warrant cannot be issued without probable cause to believe that the parolee has violated one or more of the conditions of their release. Probable cause exists when evidence or information which appears reliable discloses facts or circumstances that would convince a person of ordinary intelligence, judgment, and experience that it is more probable than not that the subject releasee has committed the acts in question. If a parole officer believes that there is probable cause that the parolee has violated a condition of release in an important respect, that parole officer is required to report that to the parole board or a designated officer, such as a senior parole officer, at which time a notice of violation may be approved and a warrant for retaking and temporary detention may be issued by, among others, a designated officer. A parole violation warrant may be administratively canceled at any time after it's issued. Here, inasmuch as defendants sufficiently raised this patent issue, that's entering the house without a warrant, in his omnibus motion, and the people's opposition papers did not resolve the issue as a matter of law, the court should have afforded defendant the opportunity to put the people to their proof regarding the alleged probable cause for the warrant. Here, here he was charged with absconding, and whether the warrant was still active at the time defendant was arrested, end quote. Next is Holmes on page 14. Here the Court of Appeals reversing defendant's conviction in a memorandum decision which did not describe the facts held the judge did not conduct a searching inquiry before allowing defendant to proceed pro se. When a defendant requests to go ahead with a trial without an attorney, the judge must conduct a searching inquiry to determine if the waiver of the right to counsel is knowing, intelligent, and voluntary, the failure to do so requires reversal and a new trial. Next is Nellis on pages 14 and 15. Here the third department, reversing defendant's murder and weapons convictions, held prosecutorial misconduct and the judge's failure to intervene there were no defense objections, required a new trial. The prosecutor repeatedly mentioned uncharged crimes which were not brought up in the Sandoval proceedings. The court wrote, quote, During their direct case, the people elicited testimony from three different witnesses about a prior bad act that had not been included in their Sandoval-Molyneux proffer. The prosecutor asked defendant whether the incident, which had occurred approximately a decade earlier, involved him shooting a rifle toward another person. Defendant denied this, and he was then questioned as to whether he tried to reload the rifle but was stopped by bystanders 
which he also denied. The prosecutor then asked, is that how you handle your confrontations? You grab a gun and just fire away? The prosecutor continued the questioning in this vein by asking defendant whether it was kind of like when you just fired a warning shot out the window, correct? The prosecutor subsequently cross-examined defendant relative to the incident involving him shooting someone off a motorcycle, which was not included in the People's Sandoval Molyneux motion. The prosecutor inquired as to whether defendant had stated in a recorded jail call that another inmate had urinated in his bed and that if he caught who did it, he would stab that person in the neck with a pencil. The magnitude of the prosecutor's misconduct was increased by the fact that county court made no effort to intervene or otherwise attempt to minimize or alleviate the prejudice being caused to the defendant. That's the end of the quote, and the murder and weapons convictions were reversed. Next is Colon, C-O-L-O-N, on page 16. The Fourth Department, reversing defendant's conviction and ordering a new trial, found that the trial judge was not bound by Fourth Department precedent in People v. Stanley to admit, under Sandoval, evidence of a prior possession of a weapon conviction in this criminal possession of a weapon uh, prosecution. In Stanley, the Fourth Department held that evidence of a prior conviction should not be excluded solely based on similarity with the offense on trial. But here, the Fourth Department made it clear that the prejudice versus probative value analysis should still be applied even where the crimes are similar. The court wrote, The lower court cited this court's decision in People v. Stanley, which is 155 A.D. 3rd, page 1684, and advised defense counsel that she may want to discuss her arguments with the Fourth Department, explaining that Stanley was their ruling, not my ruling, and that it was bound by the Fourth Department's rulings. Stanley, however, stands for the proposition that cross-examination of a defendant concerning a prior crime is not prohibited solely because of the similarity between that crime and the crime charged. That means that a Sandoval application by the people should not be automatically denied merely because a prior conviction is similar in nature to the present offense, and certainly does not mean that a court must automatically grant the people's application. There was nothing in Stanley that bound the court in this case, and to the contrary, the court was required to make its own discretionary balancing of the probative value of defendant's prior conviction against its potential for undue prejudice, end quote. Next is People X. Rel. Rivera, pages 18 and 19. Here the petitioner remained incarcerated past his parole release date because housing which complied with the school ground statute, which prohibits sex offenders from being within 1,000 feet of school grounds, could not be found. Even though Petitioner was convicted before the school ground statute was enacted, the majority in the Court of Appeals' opinion concluded the statute does not violate the ex post facto clause, but there were three dissenting judges. So to reiterate, 
the statute that prohibits sex offenders from being within a thousand feet of school grounds applies even to those uh, prisoners who were convicted before the statute was passed. Next is Anthony, pages 19 and 20. Here the Court of Appeals held that defendant's age, 51, and positive performance in the prison sex offender treatment and educational programs, given the seriousness of his offenses, did not warrant a SORA risk-level downward departure from level 3 to level 2. There was a strong two-judge dissent in that Court of Appeals case. Next is Worley on pages 21 and 22. Here the Court of Appeals held that even where the total number of SORA risk-level points remains unchanged from that recommended by the board, the judge cannot remove one inapplicable risk factor and then add a risk factor not recommended by the board without affording defendant 10 days' notice and an opportunity to be heard. Next is Weber on pages 22 and 23. Here in this SORA risk-level proceeding, the Court of Appeals held the appellate division appropriately remitted the matter to county court to determine whether an upward departure was warranted. The appellate division had found a risk factor did not apply, reducing defendant's risk level from 3 to 2. County Court had not considered an upward departure in the, original, in the original SORA proceeding because defendant's presumptive risk level was already level 3. So now that the appellate division had reduced, reduced it to level 2, the matter was sent back for the County Court to consider whether an upward departure was appropriate. Next is People versus Superintendent pages 24 and 25. Here, the Court of Appeals held the statute prohibiting sex offenders on parole from being within 1,000 feet of school grounds applies to youthful offenders who are on parole. As the Court explained it, the Sexual Assault Reform Act, SARA, S-A-R-A, imposes a mandatory restriction prohibiting a person who is serving a sentence for an enumerated offense against a minor victim and is released on parole from coming within 1,000 feet of school grounds. That's Executive Law, Section 259-C. The question presented in this appeal is whether that restriction applies to youthful offenders. We hold that it does. Petitioner pleaded guilty to the attempted second-degree rape of a 13-year-old victim. Petitioner was 18 years old at the time of the offense and was adjudicated a youthful offender. The Board of Parole granted Petitioner an open date, that is, the earliest possible release date of August 2018, subject to numerous conditions of relief. Petitioner was required to abide by Sarah's school grounds condition and thus would not be released until he identified a Sarah-compliant residence, unable to obtained suitable housing, petitioner remained imprisoned. The purpose of the school grounds condition is to bar offenders who pose the highest risk to children from entering school grounds. Certainly someone accorded youthful offender status can fall into that ca category. 
While we appreciate that the consequences of imposing the school grounds condition may be severe, the legislature has authorized the imposition of other long-term consequences, such as a lengthy probationary term on youthful offenders. And once the youthful offender serves their sentence, the school grounds condition is lifted and the youthful offender will receive the fresh start provided to them by statute. End quote. Next is Cleveland on pages 27 and 28. In this street stop case, both the majority and the dissent agreed that defendants grabbing at his waistband and running did not provide the police with reasonable suspicion. The Fourth Department's majority found that defendants stopping his car in the street and aggressively approaching a woman in another car with clenched fists provided the police with reasonable suspicion and that justified pursuit. The dissent disagreed. Next is Montgomery, pages 28 and 29. At the suppression hearing, the people have the initial burden of demonstrating the legality of the police conduct. That issue is a question of law which can be reviewed by an appellate court. Here the stop was based on the allegation defendant violated the vehicle and traffic law by walking in the middle of the street. The people made no attempt to show there were sidewalks or, if there were sidewalks, that they were passable in January. The vehicle and traffic law violation was not supported by sufficient proof. The police, therefore, did not prove the legality of the police conduct and the suppression motion should have been granted, as the court explained it. Vehicle and Traffic Law Section 1156A requires that where sidewalks are provided and they may be used with safety, it shall be unlawful for any pedestrian to walk along and upon an adjacent roadway. Here, when asked at the suppression hearing if he had seen defendant doing anything illegal, the testifying police officer responded, other than walking down the center of the road, no. Even assuming arguendo that we can infer the presence of a sidewalk based on the officer's response, we conclude that the people failed to establish that a sidewalk was available and that it could be used safely, especially when considering the defendant was stopped in January in central New York. Nor did the people establish that defendant, by walking down the center of the road, violated section 1156B which requires a pedestrian where sidewalks are not provided to walk only on the left side of the roadway or its shoulder facing traffic inasmuch as a pedestrian is only required to do so when practicable. End quote. Next is Bradford, pages 30 and 31. Here the Court of Appeals over a two-judge dissent held the fact that defendant was wearing a stun belt without the knowledge of the judge or the prosecutor was not a mode of proceedings error. However, questions remained about whether defendant received effective assistance of counsel regarding the failure to object to the stun belt and a hearing on the motion to vacate the conviction on ineffective assistance grounds is required. The de- the the dissent argued that the stun belt error constituted a mode of proceedings error which required reversal. 
As the court explained it, it is undisputed that sheriff officials required defendant to wear a stun belt at trial, that neither the people nor the trial court were aware of that fact, and that defendant failed to preserve any argument concerning the stun belt. Because the trial court did not articulate a particularized need for defendant to wear a stun belt, the use of that restraint was error. However, the error was not preserved. The courts below erred by summarily denying the portion of defendant's motion to vacate his conviction concerning his ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Given the conceded stun belt violation, factual issues exist concerning trial counsel's effectiveness. For instance, county courts should determine if counsel had a legitimate explanation for declining to object to the stun belt, end quote. So the takeaway here, even though the stun belt error was not preserved, the defendant's argument that his counsel was ineffective for failing to object to the stun belt was preserved, and the appellate court sent it back to county court for a determination of that aspect of his motion to vacate. And that concludes this April-May-June 2023 Criminal Law Update CLE.